You wouldn't buy a car without a seatbelt, a laptop without Wi-Fi, or go a day without your cell phone. Could a business survive without the internet? Then why are many healthcare providers and provider organizations still not connected and enabled to share critical clinical information digitally in the care of your friends and family? Welcome to Notify, a podcast from Notu. Join host Dr. Peter Schock, Chief Health Officer, and Teresa Bell, Founder, President, and CTO, as they bring the profound impact of healthcare communication to life through frank conversation in understandable language and through real-world context, they'll demystify interoperability, helping you unlock the potential of healthcare communication at scale. You'll also learn the transformative impact of being no two connected. Connect. Connect. Listen. Listen. Transform. Transform. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Notify. Uh, I think this is our sixth episode, and we've been kind of on this journey uh, talking through how interoperability is foundational in solving healthcare's biggest problems, and we've been doing it through the context of a patient journey, and in this case, or a healthcare story, and in this case, we've used the healthcare story of Therese's father, who suffered a fall. He's a uh, elderly gentleman with Parkinson's and osteoporosis, suffered a fall uh, in the fall of this year, broke a hip, was seen by EMS, transported to a, a community hospital, and then transferred to a tertiary care center closer to where he lives for um, a procedure, and then spent some time in a um, skilled nursing facility before being transferred home with home services. And Teresa was visiting family over Thanksgiving and had the opportunity to take her dad to the neurologist's office. And that visit and some of the interactions you had there and, and how you experienced care there served as a foundation for talking about the impact of interoperability on the provider experience. We actually spent a couple episodes talking about the provider kind of mystique around interoperability, um, the learned helplessness that providers have, the lack of understanding they have around truly what interoperability brings them as an impact to their business and clinical decision-making. And then we spent the next episode, the one that's live now, talking a little bit about the provider experience and what we call the provider persona of impact, meaning how interoperability actually creates impact in the provider experience that not only improve provider experience, but also solve some of other healthcare's biggest problems. And I think, Trace, we had today, we wanted to slate and kind of talk about another persona that we use to describe the impact of interoperability. And really, it's the patient persona, right? And I call this persona me, myself, and I, um, or you can call it you, yourself, and yours if you want to. But the truth is we're all going to be patients one day or have all been patients in the past of the healthcare system. And we all have our experiences or have seen family members go through experiences. And I believe interoperability has a huge role to play in improving patient outcomes, care coordination for patients, and patient experience in a variety of ways. And I'd like to spend a little time talking about that today, Trace, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, I think there's especially with the neurologist office, there's multiple points where uh, the experience could have been far better than what was experienced. And interoperability is at the core of it because it was just about the smooth transition from one setting to the next. It's really 
we talk about care transitions, we talk about referrals, and, and that's always the focus in care coordination. And those words get overused, and I don't think they, they get lost. The meaning of what it really means gets lost because we use them so much. Just like interoperability is used way too much in terms of what it means and the impact of it. But that's what it comes down to. It's really about transitioning from one provider and what they're responsible for to another and knowing that they know about me. And it's and it's opportunity to do that. So I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, I, I love that you're, you, you hit on something there that I think I want to expound on just a little bit before we get started in the conversation. Number one is this idea of care transitions and what does it really mean? Because I think we get numb to it in healthcare. Oh, I think we get numb yeah. to it in the interoperability space. And what we're really talking about is giving people the information to have the impact we're going to talk about today from a patient experience perspective, or like we talked about last week, from a provider experience perspective. But that's really the purpose of care transitions. We get kind of hung up in a, and rightly so to some degree, in the process of that care transition, but we forget the impact of that care transition um, as seen through these different lenses um, that we're going to talk about a little bit today. Yeah, I, I, I was numb as absolutely, and I'll, I'll put myself as a uh, guilty party in that because I spend most of my career on care transitions and discussions around it and really getting down to the heart of what a care transition looks like and not losing the emotion of it and the benefit of it is, is critically important. And that would have changed, you know, certainly wouldn't take away the hard, very hard struggle um, that watching my dad and, and family go through, but it would have eased it for sure. Um, and it would have eased the anxiety. My sister felt she had to be there 24-7. You know, just the anxiety of just in case they don't know, somebody's got to be his advocate. And that that anxiety, I can't even put words to it. I mean, what she felt, and of course I felt that because I was there and trying to relieve her of, as the primary caregiver, is just there all the time. And And if you just could remove that, the energy that that would give that person back. I know it's kind of a weird perspective. But just taking that, they know, they know my dad, they know what medications is on, they know what has happened and they know what therapy he's going through, for instance, with the Parkinson's doctor, so they can reflect it into the care plan. Yeah, it's that anxiety alone. And there's so many more examples of different opportunities, but would be phenomenal. To remove you that. know, it's a real interesting thing there too, because it brings out this statement that we've heard or, or used throughout healthcare around being a patient advocate. Um, and I remember, you know, when I went into medicine years ago, I considered myself the ultimate patient advocate as a physician. And then somewhere in the middle of my career, nurses began to take on that moniker and it seemed to leave physicians. Um, and it seemed to be that nurses were patient advocates. And I think it was around things like safety and pain when the pain became the fifth vital sign. Yes, it led to a lot of problems in terms of the op opioid epidemic, but it also led to nurses being more seen as patient advocates in that regard and advocating for the care of their patients in different ways. And then it's kind of moved um, as I had a conversation with one of our own employees who had um, a healthcare issue with um, a family member where they went to the emergency room recently. And I listened to her who had had a bad experience in healthcare in the past and so was had a little bit of post-traumatic stress um, related to going to the emergency room with someone um, because the prior experience, the outcome was poor, the communication was poor, um, and there were some mistakes that probably were made in that regard. And so it leaves you with this distrust and this anxiety when you interface with the healthcare system. And so 
she was inter- intervening with the health, interfacing with the healthcare system on behalf of uh, a family member. And her words to me when she uh, called me and asked me about some things were, um, "Thank you, because now I know how to advocate for 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 that person." Right. And the interesting thing about that is we've kind of taken this idea of patient advocacy from the shoulders of the physician where it was uh, years ago when I started. And I think most of us physicians feel that we're still there. Expanded it to nursing um, and now expanded it a little bit to um, uh, family members who care for those folks. And as I think about some of these transitions of care and interoperability and being known by my providers, one of the greatest ways that we can be advocates for our patients is to have the information freely flowing across the healthcare ecosystem so that in these transitions of care, to your point, they're already known to us in large part. At least the big elements are known. And we can spend time building rapport, listening to what's important to them, uh, tailoring uh, diagnosis and treatment appropriately and so forth. So just another key point. Trace, before we log into this here, we'll take a quick break. But before the break, I want to talk a little bit about some recent news that just came out. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to speak to it. Uh, because I think it does move nationwide interoperability forward. Um, I'm speaking, of course, of the early designation um, uh, at the ONC event of some of the initial QHINs. We're one of the initial candidate QHINs. There were several of our colleagues that were designated and um, were on track to be designated after the first of the year. But I just wanted to hear from you. It's a it's a I think it's a a big event uh, from the perspective of interoperability. Um, And um, I didn't know if you wanted to comment on it. Oh, I think it's a huge event. Um, man, it was a it was an emotional day in a very positive way yesterday. Even I wasn't able to be present in D.C., uh, but our CEO was and had representation with our VP of interoperability. But listening to it streaming remotely, a uh, huge event because I was there not quite one year ago in February when we were we had a group of these uh, QHINs that were approved applicants to then go take on the work effort of building out on our dime right, of building out the QHIN because we didn't get any money. Nobody got any money to do this. And so it's all in the spirit of what we think we can accomplish. Uh, But then to watch this first group, which I completely congratulate this first group, uh, worked really hard to get to where they're at and we're right behind them. We have some extra work that we're applying to it because of our, our kind of the way we go into market with the communication API. But man, it was cool. It was cool to see it come to reality. Um, You know, this is, the second step of many steps that need to come and really cool to see it and excited, obviously, for us to be designated. That should be within the next few weeks uh, and we'll have it embedded back in the communication API uh, as part of our commitment, kind of broader commitment to our partners that they are future proof. No matter what they do, we have connectivity covered in what they've already integrated to. Um, so that's that's a little bit of our delay here, but you know, a good delay, good reason for a delay and not being there in the first group. But man, it was exciting. and. Now it's about over the next, I'll probably put a 12-month time frame on it to measure from the time we're designated to maybe post it out one year from there. How is it going? How is QHIN activity moving? Uh, are we seeing it knock down some of the final barriers that some of the historical networks that are active today haven't been able to knock down? Uh, hopefully so. That is the case. I've uh, been excited. And I just can't wait for this next 2024 to push on some of the things we're talking about, like transitions of care and seeing it come through, but also for other non-treatment activities where patient information needs to flow. Uh, There's many different opportunities for it. So yeah, I'm thrilled. I can't express it enough. 
Yeah, and I just would I just would uh, say to our listeners again and reemphasize what you said. Uh, I think every organization that became a candidate QHIN, meaning their application was accepted and they were uh, approved to proceed with building to the QTR for the QHIN technical uh, framework. Everybody created their own timeline based upon their internal goals and how they were operationalizing it. And we're operating to our timeline, which we anticipate, again, uh, right after the end of the year is our intent to uh, to uh, be designated. So we'll be standing yeah. along them right after the That's end of this year and beginning of next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we'll be standing up alongside them and, and uh, really look forward to partnering with them uh, in the work of building a functional um, uh, national interoperability framework um, that will be a critical part of. So just I couldn't let the week go uh, without acknowledgement of that, uh, I think, sentinel event um, in our process. Do I think it's the only significant event? Do I think there won't be other events in the future? No. But it's the next step, um, uh, uh, I think. And, and even in the live stream, Teresa, they were talking about the shoulders of the individuals they were standing on uh, in building the framework, the nature of a public uh, private relationship is that they set the framework and we pay for it. <laughs> that's, that's usually the way those things happen. But just talking about building on the work that's gone before, you know, with all the standards that gone before and knowing that no two has been at every stage of significant interoperability development, whether it be standards, networks, et cetera, no two has been at the forefront helping to be provide thought leadership um, and um, general leadership in the interoperability space in those things. So, yeah, absolutely, and so much more to do. I, I do want to go back to the conversation, just maybe earmark it for after break. Is the um, advocacy piece? Uh, I had some um, thoughts in there in terms of uh, provider burnout and why maybe we're seeing some of this transition uh, and just the unrealistic expectations that possibly we have on providers right now for advocacy yeah. that they can't do. It. Yeah, um, I'd love to. So. Yeah, that's a real good one. Let's let's do bring that back. I, we need to have a conversation about that because I do think I'd love to understand what you mean by unrealistic provider expectations, because I think healthcare executives probably have a perspective. General population probably has a perspective and providers probably have a perspective on what the unrealistic expectations are. And I don't think they're 100 percent aligned, probably a Venn diagram, but I don't think they're 100 percent aligned. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a quick break. We'll come right back and, and uh, dive into the the persona of impact of the patient, me, myself, and I, um, uh, and how interoperability begins to solve for some of those problems, have impact there, and that can solve for some of our bigger problems in healthcare. Be right back. All right. Hello. Um, I would like you to introduce yourself super quickly. Uh, my name's Gareth Arch, uh, QA engineer, um, do testing and kind of uh, automation and, and uh, testing all the code, make sure it all works and try and break everything. Perfect. All right. Um, um, what is your why for working at No2 or in healthcare technology? Uh, I enjoy the, the kind of the, the fast pace of it. Uh, the, uh, the, it's helping lots of people. Uh, it will make it, uh, healthcare and more accessible to everyone uh, for uh, everything that we're doing. So it's, it's a uh, very, uh, very appealing in that way to, to kind of better, better mankind. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. What is your all-time favorite movie and why? Probably Die Hard. I <laughs> watch it every year. Uh, it's the, uh, like the, the debate of is it, uh, is it a Christmas movie or not? But I uh, just uh, very much enjoy it. Good, uh, good. Uh, uh, Lots of action, 
good comedy okay. with it too. So, do you consider it a Christmas movie? Yes, that's it. Okay. Got to have the Christmas side to it. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, if you were a house, what kind of house would you be? Perhaps a town home. I like to kind of have my own space, but also be kind of close enough that I can kind of uh, friends and family and everything nearby if I need to. So. Um, last question. If you were a spice, which spice would you be? Go with, go with the salt to, to add a bit of flavor to things. That's it. All right. I like it. Connect. Listen. Transform. This is Notify with your host, Dr. Peter Shuck and Teresa Bell. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking a little bit about uh, interoperability as foundational to solving healthcare's biggest problems through four personas of impact. Last week, we talked about the provider uh, and through the provider experience, how that improves healthcare's biggest problems. Today, we're going to talk about the patient. And I'm using me, myself, and I um, as kind of the designation for that persona because we're all going to be or have been patients in a healthcare system or in need of healthcare. So, Teresa, just let's bring it back to over Thanksgiving, when you visited your family um, and um, you were continuing the journey of your father, he had a previously scheduled neurology visit that was a follow-up, a regular follow-up visit, not necessarily a follow-up to him being in the hospital. And it was a neurologist who wasn't involved with his hospital care. Um, so his regular neurologist. And you also had services that he was receiving at home, such as rehab and so forth, as he was continuing his recovery. I want to take you back to when we were talking last time, that office visit, and you gave us some great insights in ter terms of what you were seeing from the provider. I want to turn the psyche around a little bit, and you turned it around on me last week and, and asked me to talk about it from a provider perspective. I'm going to have you talk about it from a patient perspective because it's most acute with you or most recent with you. Tell me what you were feeling in that room as you walked in there as there were questions being asked, there were documents being looked for, um, all of that kind of stuff. Can you just kind of take us through your mindset, if you will, from a patient experience or a family experience perspective to start with? And then we'll talk about, I think that I've got a ton of questions about how you think interoperability would have solved some of those or could have improved some of those. But I'd like to know what you were feeling first, what your experience of the care was. And, and, and when I say experience yeah. of the care, I don't mean that the care medical decision not the medical decision pieces of it uh, or the treatment pieces of it, but how it was delivered. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I'll bring back in the provider burnout conversation that we were having right before. Break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, okay, I think you don't want to talk about it. So you avoided it as we can. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I burn out. <laughs> burn out talking about it. When, when's somebody going to do something about it? I'm burnout talking about it. No, go ahead. I, I don't, I don't mean it, but happy yeah. to answer any questions there. So as you mentioned, sitting in the neurologist's office, this was a, a, a visit that had already been scheduled months before. Um, so accident occurred, surgery occurred, rehab was underway, right? So he had inpatient rehab and then he went to the home and he had home provider uh, with therapy services as part of it. Uh, so this was a scheduled visit in amongst all that, right? So we, I take my dad to the visit um, and of course get to the front desk, check in and they hand me a clipboard, which like still astounds me that I get clipboards to fill out, but I have this clipboard that has four pages of information on it back in both sides. And, and so one, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm like with a Parkinson's patient, which obviously 
that's not going to happen, that he could complete it if somehow he got dropped off because uh, he's completely capable of conversation and so forth. So if he was dropped off for the appointment, he would not be able to complete the So I'm looking at this saying, well, thank goodness I'm with him. Right. So I can I can walk through this. But I'm looking at it. And these questions were obviously to inform the provider of the gap between the last time that we were seen and now and to give them any change in condition, any incidences, anything and to inform the provider prior to meeting with them. So and like, it wasn't oh, a, it wasn't a normal six month span of time because he had had this significant event occur in the intervening visits, right? In between visits, right. yeah. So it, and, and just one, thing, right? so all and one point of clarification too: when you say he has Parkinson's and therefore couldn't fill out the form, not everybody with Parkinson's is afflicted to the same degree and at the same time frame uh, related to their uh, fine motor tremors and ability to 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 write and those kind of things. Um, but that does impact the legibility of what he'd be filling out, his ability to fill that out, as well as some of the cognitive pieces um, may have impacted that as well, especially after having been in the hospital and gone through a delirium on top of his uh, cognitive impairment. So I just wanted to, sorry, right. it's the doctor in me. I apologize. Probably wasn't necessary for the group, but if I, I felt the need to do it. Sorry. But you feel better. <laughs> you feel better. I do. Thank okay. you. I do feel better. Yeah, I felt the burden and pressure there. And I feel better now. So, okay, continue on, please. <laughs> Pretend it didn't happen. The, so as I'm, I'm looking at this form, and again, it's to fill the gap of the time in between from the last visit to this one, which was, I think there was four months in between, if I'm not mistaken. And so I'm filling it out front, back, four pages. And these were not like, there was a few check mark, you know, check yes or no type question, but these were like uh, essay in college, right? That's <laughs> This is what I'm going through. Uh, and I'm filling it out. I'm working through the details. It's asking for change of condition, anything you know, notable. Um, and there's like if then statements. If this is true, then did you experience this, right? And and I'm like, okay, this is reasonable that the provider wants to be informed before they see my dad um, and be able to read through this quickly. But to our point on communication and the ability to have this information, pretty significant information for a Parkinson's patient. Right, including the therapy and the medications he was now on, uh, the actively that will impact him. Right? Uh, nope, none of that. So I'm like, man, if we could have had all of that information provided, and I, I won't speak for a provider here. I'm, I'm going to speak from an engineering mind. But if I could have it in a log, in a sequence, time sequence format, this is what happened, and then have different sections that show, hey, you know, here's the medications, here's current therapy. That seemed logical to me. To, but then to create, you had used this word a number of months ago, and I really liked it, and it's used obviously in social media, but to curate that into a, into a very welcoming document that the patient would have, or the patient's advocate has that says, hey, uh, we understand that it's been, sorry to hear that, sorry to hear that you've been through this, um, this is what we understand your current situation is, this is the therapy you're under, you know, if you see anything else missing, you know, please advise, or if there's other activity, please advise, but man, that feeling, I, I was worried I was going to miss something in the form because yep. that, now that provider was going to be as good as the information that I was going to provide them. And, and I wasn't there in every situation. No, that's the sobering thought that I thought you were getting to at that point is the full responsibility and weight of the care that he had received outside of the purview of that neurologist fell on you in that moment to deliver. And I just want to ask a couple of yeah. questions, and these may seem rudimentary questions. 
but you are not now or nor have you ever been a medical doctor. Is that correct? I don't know about that. I feel that there's a certain <laughs> time that's been in the company. I no, don't know. This is not related to my personal feeling that you often play a doctor. Um, this is this is just this is for the purpose of this conversation. Oh. <laughs> like I have a long-term residency that has sufficed yes. for this. Right. No, and you have you have you're not now or nor have you ever been a received clinical nursing training. That is accurate. Yeah. Like I'm on trial, but yes. No, 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 Honor, no. Nor true. are you now or have you ever been a pharmacist. Not that I recall. But yet all of the information that that doctor was going to get related to the care that your father received at two hospitals and a long-term care facility rendered by pharmacists, physicians, and nurses was going to come down to your interpretation about what they told you, documents they gave you that you could distill, a medication list or prescription bottles that you were probably copying off of and had very little understanding of what they did how they interact and so forth. Is that a fair statement? I feel like I'm a, I, I'm not trying to be a lawyer, I, but, I, but I feel like, uh, cause I've never been You're a lawyer. <laughs> are, you, are you an attorney? Cause that's what this is. No, right? Not at all. But I'm, I want to illustrate how, how really ludicrous the thinking is there in our society, I the, the add, thinking. Yeah. I mean, it's, that is absolutely correct. I have none of those things. I'm an engineer. <laughs> I will say I, I think I bring an unfair advantage to it, even though I'm not a clinician by background. I bring an unfair advantage because I am sitting in these conversations and I do know yeah. what gets tracked and I am sitting in a room. So I'm bringing in a level of knowledge that my sister, who is a, who's a hygienist by trade, is she doesn't bring to the table. Or to my other sister, who's a graphic artist and, and somebody else. Like, so I'm all incredibly intelligent, all incredibly intelligent, articulate people who can make right. good decisions, but don't have a base of knowledge that we're asking them to have, right? To advocate it's, appropriately. It's yeah, and, and you hope you don't miss. And, and I know I brought up the experience, how warm it could, there's two sides of it. It's reducing, it's transferring information, critical information, so that the next provider can render care appropriately with the information they have. But I also believe there's a positive to this, because to me, that's that's the that's the disaster avoidance, whatever it is, right? To avoid that critical risk management. But you also have the positive side is, man, to create that warm experience. When do, when do you ever go to a provider to say, man, that felt great? That, you know, that I feel like they know me. I feel like I'm their family. There's also the warm side of interoperability that allows for not only the, you know, the push of information from one provider to another, but also to create a really cool experience off of it. For the for the patient as they're sitting in that waiting room and as they're they're meeting with the, the provider, I just think there's both sides to the equation. So, so that's so why I brought keep, up the warm fuzzy. Yeah, yeah. Two, two things there. Number one, keep digging on that point about the warmth because I don't think we're at. I, I don't think we've clearly articulated what Probably you're getting at, at that create that, that creates the warmth. But I love it and I want to go there because it's important. So keep digging on that. What is it that creates the warmth about giving the provider the information they need in that circumstance? And we've so talked about it from provider, a provider experience, but not from a patient experience. Yeah, there's one thing if the provider has their information right in their EHR. So prior to seeing my dad, that needs to be displayed in a view that's meaningful to the provider with the right information. And then when you're when a patient's coming in, they're sitting in the waiting room and they're they're waiting to be seen, the opportunities to change just like transform care delivery 
in terms of the true patient experience, we're talking about, you know, food, shelter, water here with giving the information to the provider. But now what can I do with that information to create the best experience for that patient or that patient as they come in the front door, man, this feels good. And even how they curate that form is here's what we understand. We're really sorry to hear about that. And that can be done automated. You absolutely can do that. Sorry to hear that you've had this event. Sorry, you know, this is what we understand about it. But that relief that I feel that they know me and that they have the information and just that I am really cared for. Man, you can create a different experience. I think about like my Marriott op. I'm going to just create a really crazy analogy, but I use Marriott. I stay in Marriott, travel all the time. And when I use the Marriott app, it's very personalized to me. And it knows my preferences. It knows what I want. And as I come in the hotel, it's like, hey, welcome. You know, Tracy Bell. Of course, that's all automated. I got it, but I like it. I like that feeling. And versus the old method that I used to have, I walk up and hope to God they have my reservation. I have to give them my name, you know, I have to give them. And it's not that if you use the app, right? And it's the ability to change truly how healthcare is delivered. What we're talking about with interoperability absolutely is table stakes. And that's what we have to do first. You know, this next phase is the next phase, you know, trying not trying to get ahead of ourselves, but it's within grasp to create that kind of experience for the patient. So I want to keep bringing this back to the granularity of what you're talking about. And you've talked about a couple of things. I want to try and put a, a finer point, a summary, and then some finer points on a couple of things. One is that um, we've talked about a couple of things. One is kind of the care coordination idea, meaning have I given enough information in the care transition that allows a provider to know them and know what has gone on with them so that we can make the next judgments around treatment, management, et cetera, at that visit. So is my care for the patient benefiting from the prior care that all the other providers have provided because I have the information I need, right? That's care coordination from my perspective. Patient safety is in that in the sense of, do I have an accurate list of their medications and allergies or any new things that might have been discovered while they have received care from other providers um, uh, between the last time they saw me and the current time? And then this idea of the patient experience through a warmth and perception of being known to the provider. And one of the other things, you didn't say this, but it was implicit in what you were saying, or I implied it, and maybe it's from being a provider that I implied it. In the same way that the administrative, the reduction of administrative burden for providers that interoperability affords creates an improved um, satisfaction with their job because they're spending more time with patients, which is what they really got into it for, right? That spending time with patients that's afforded by that information creates the warmth you're talking about. One of my favorite things as a provider, and it's so small, but when I had a provider that was in out of state and had a significant problem or even in a hospital uh, in my uh, large city, um, and I wasn't the attending physician at that time, whether it was for procedure, whatever it was, and I had that information, and I could walk into that patient's room and say, Mr. Johnson, I see you were in the hospital and had a hip fracture. Man, I, that that looks like it was a very difficult time for you. And it looks like you're getting better, though. Uh, I got the information from so-and-so. Tell me how you're doing. All of a sudden, it creates this rapport that actually allows them to start talking about themselves in a different way that's more than just clinical um, and creates, I think, it helps to afford or, or create space for the warmth you're talking about. But I think that's a really important point uh, around the patient experience. It isn't always, it isn't, we talk about convenience all the time. We talk about access all the time. And those things are part of patient experience. 
but sometimes it's, do you see me? Do you know me? <laughs> do you see me? Do yeah. you know me? Yeah. It convenience and act, I think it depends on the care setting, right? Is do you see me and do you know me? But yeah, I just think there's such, I, I think it's limitless in terms of what we can do with the data to improve the patient experience. And then like every other you, industry, does that, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you're exactly right. Consumer driven approach in every other industry. And we're, it's okay. We're behind. That's fine. We're putting up the national networks to do it. And then we need to feed our providers first. But man, tons of opportunity to just drive such a cool experience for for patients in their in their most difficult situations. I think too this idea of the consumer. You bring it up, and it's an interesting one. And and a couple of the, one of the health systems I worked for most recently was very proactive in kind of changing the dialogue around patient to consumer. Um, and at first, as a physician, it feels weird because historically we think of patients, but the reality of why they did that, I thought, was really important, and it was it wasn't something that was not thought out. Uh, it was thought out in that when you think of a patient, you think of somebody who is unempowered, um, who is passive, who is a recipient of things being done to them. When you think of a consumer, you think of somebody who has agency, somebody who has um, uh, choice, somebody who has uh, the power to do different things. Um, they feel empowered. Um, so it's a different mindset, really, when you think about it. Uh, and, and when you really talk about patient advocacy, consumerism in healthcare is really, really important. The other thing that struck me when you said that is probably a conversation for a different day, but I'll just touch on it here. And that is consumerism, two big changes in the healthcare industry that were late coming to healthcare, but have been present in manufacturing and other business for some time. Uh, there, there are three that are necessary and two are uh, two are. Uh, starting to get inculcated, and the third one's just just breaking in. The first one is total quality management. This is Lean Six Sigma. How do we reduce defects, reduce errors, and so forth? It was in the manufacturing area uh, uh, for a long time, brought over by Deming from Japan, the auto manufacturing uh, industry, and it's coming to healthcare. It's been coming to healthcare for the last decade, decade and a half, and it's really begun to improve the reliability of our care, um, the safety of the care environments, et cetera. Incredibly important, but it's bizarre to think that in healthcare, it's a late adopter of those things. Second one is the market orientation or consumerism. Again, something that's focused on a patient, you have to have the patient to have healthcare, to deliver healthcare. And yet it's something that is putting the the consumer at the center of it and having a consumer-centric mentality um, is something that's been late coming to healthcare over the last decade and a half, two decades. The third thing that's really late coming to healthcare, but it's true and it's impactful in a lot of different areas, and we won't get into it today, is just activity-based cost accounting. Do we really know what it costs to deliver the care that we're delivering? And that's an important conversation for anybody in value-based care, um, anybody uh, concerned about uh, the waste in healthcare in general. And then the other thing I would say about the consumerism piece is it's funny because when we think about care delivery to a consumer, that's one level of experience. I want EHRs and interoperability partners to think about first, who is your primary consumer? Your primary consumers are people who are providing healthcare. What can we do to improve their experience? Again, going back, linking the provider experience to the patient experience conversation. And like you and I have said, you can't get the patient experience you want if you don't have the provider experience you want. And while EHRs through portals and so forth are starting to be direct to consumer in some way, it's first and primary consumer 
is the provider um, and how do we do that better? Our first and primary consumer may be EHR partners, but our secondary consumer is the provider um, uh, in that regard, right? Because they're using the, the results we do. So let's take a quick break. Let's come back, try and wrap things up uh, for today um, uh, around the patient experience. I know there's some more things. There's so much I want to ask you, Teresa, about, and you uncover a lot of things that that that, that I want to make sure we highlight about the patient experience. But you've talked a little bit about care coordination, um, uh, patient safety, um, and the patient experience from a being seen and known perspective. Um, when we come back, maybe we'll wrap up the conversation today. And if you have any other comments about any of the other aspects of that, I'd love to hear them. So we'll take a quick break, come right back. Um, can you state your name and your title uh, for the organization? You bet. My name is Dane Moyler, and I'm the VP of Business Development. Awesome. Um, I know you've answered this probably a handful of times, but what is your why for working at No2? Well, that's probably a little different than most, only because I'm one of the co-founders. So the why is because we had an ambition from the very beginning to connect healthcare, improve just patient care ultimately by improving the workflows. And so the why is ultimately focused on the patient and the efficiency that the health systems gain by doing it in a a more a contemporary way instead of legacy methods. Um, so what is the most unique or unusual job that you've ever had? And this can be like starting from when you're like 10 years old until now. Well, you have to understand my heritage. My parents had a business in the document management business or industry. So as a sixth grader, my after school activity, because I had to walk to my the little place where they started their business. And I got to do document preparation by pulling staples. That's pretty exciting. Wow. Uh, yeah. The uh, Other than that, I've, uh, I've been a busboy. I've been a cook. I've been, uh, and then in the technology and document management business for as long as I can remember. Um. What is a TV show or a movie that you're embarrassed to admit that you love? Well, everybody is embarrassed for me when I tell them that I think the Teletubbies was an awesome show. And I okay. even had a Lala doll that someone got me because it had little it had a little voice thing that you punched on her belly or her him. No one ever could tell. Anyway, oh my goodness. Teletubbies. It was a genius show. What outfit or trend or hairstyle did you wear or have growing up that you would be mortified to see if it came back in this generation? Oh, no, you don't understand. I had the Bieber before the Bieber was the Bieber. Oh, uh, you did? I did. See, I was in the 70s, and so I had the whole thing going on. And so um, other than that, I mean, thinning hairline and all that, that's why it's finally just got shaved off. So. Uh, probably the the little swoopy thing I had going on up here before I shaved it off. Uh, um, okay, one last question uh, that also says a lot about a person. What would you sing at karaoke night? Well, all right. So I'm not quite sure why this question's in there because we we do karaoke get-togethers at our house frequently. Oh gosh. Okay. And I am not one of the singers, but because of peer pressure, I am forced to sometimes grab a microphone 
there's so many good singers that we have as friends. And my wife is an amazing singer. And so then I have to embarrassingly stand up and choose a song. So mm-hmm. my, uh, I guess, my favorite, I guess, is uh, Sweet Caroline by That's Neil Diamond. And then uh, I, I like, approve. what's that? You said, I approve. Oh, good. This is good. Uh, the, uh, I think the other ones that I frequently sing, um, Harry Chapin, uh, Cats in the Cradle. And then uh, I'm big Pink Floyd, The Wall. So okay. those are my those go-to. Are all good. If you were a spice, which spice would you be? I would probably have to say salt. Why? Because it is just kind of right down the middle. It's not up here. It's not down there. It's just right down the middle. Connect. Listen. Transform. This is Notify with your host, Dr. Peter Shuck and Teresa Bell. Welcome back, everybody. We're wrapping up our episode today on the interoperability's impact on uh, solving healthcare's biggest problems through four personas of impact. Uh, Today, we're talking about the patient, me, myself, and I, really through patient experience, care coordination, patient safety. Teresa, we talked a lot about a number of those things in the last section. Is there anything that we missed or any other things that you want to make sure that we talk about today or that you bring to light around the patient experience that you saw related to either the neurology visit or the the home care uh, and rehab stuff that was going on at all. Yeah, I, I mean, specifically, I think it, it would be redundant to kind of pick back up on those. But you know, just to kind of summarize, I think I, if I do the count right, you had five transitions from the the time of the incident through the neurologist visits and what's continued to be home home engagements. Um, the transition of care, the, you know, that information moving from one care setting to another, and then the sharing of information where it's not necessarily the patient's moving, but medications, for instance, that he was prescribed. That the, the re- final end of this patient experience would be to, I talked about the relief to my sister, who's the primary caregiver, but the ability to access from a patient perspective, the information on demand, that I was at all these settings and there is not one place that a patient can go today and get their information. So unless my sister signed up for the patient portal down at the community hospital that he was transported to, besides the transport itself, can't see that. And then the transport that brought him to the, I think, tertiary hospital, the ability to see that, they are part of Epic there. So she's part of my chart in that particular case. And then the neurologist and then the home agency. To get, be able to have one place that the patient goes to grab all of that information for themselves, or be able to see it. Um, I, you probably have been a pretty loud voice on this. I don't think that a patient can do a whole lot with that information other than just make sure it's transported from one care setting to the next with them where they have gaps in care by the provider. Um, but certainly having access to that information, that is individual access, right? That's a big focus in some of the QHIN initiatives coming forward. There's a lot of debate on should it, you know, should the patient have access to everything? What does it look like? Those debates will be hopefully solved here over the next year or so. Um, but the patient does own their data. And my sister, instead of carrying, literally, she has a, a binder that she keeps and she updates it. So my dad has this record and she asks for records and she keeps the binder and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what she does, right? And then I think about our, 
elderly patients in this population that we have coming in where maybe they don't have a family member or a family member that can be present or they don't have the advocacy. So individual access is critically important for their safety. Not necessarily that I think they're going to do all this stuff with the information. That's a that's a different debate. But that's where I would that was where I ended. It's part of the patient experience is being able to access my own information that you just created. And I appreciate that. You know, now can I get it and see it and and persist it into my next, you know, my next care setting. Yeah, I love that. And and we probably ought to have a whole conversation about that. You and I have talked about a upcoming podcast talking about um really information. It's funny because patients have a harder time getting their information, but companies are monetizing that information and creating whole business models and profitability around reconfiguring, analyzing, and selling um, uh, insights off that data. Uh, but patients have a hard time getting it at times. And then the other thing that comes to mind when you're talking about that is we work with folks um, uh, in the industry, um, uh, technology vendors in the industry who are trying to create uh, easy methodologies for which individuals who have a high burden of illness themselves or care for somebody with a high burden of illness or um, um, uh, a chronic medical or developmental problem can keep those rec- get access to those records and keep those records in a common place so that it can ease the burden of actually being a caregiver for somebody in those circumstances. Um, uh, and it's all around affording them the appropriate connectivity uh, into the healthcare ecosystem. And in some cases, too, predicated on the individual access, uh, which I think will open that up a little bit, as you mentioned. So I, I think uh, I think we'll leave it there. I, I really do appreciate you allowing us to continue to share the story of your father and your own personal experience and the rawness of that experience, uh, because I think at times it's um, what I hear in your voice is a real appreciation for the level of dedication, commitment, and care um, that providers are trying and often succeeding in giving, um, but also a recognition that we're not making it as easy for them as possible to do it. Um, And both of those things have an impact on what we experience in care and how good our care can be um, as we go through the process. So uh, more to come. But again, I think from a perspective of interoperability foundation solving healthcare's biggest problems, the patient persona, meaning me, myself, and I, interoperability can solve a number of those uh, issues uh, that make a fragmented system feel much more coordinated, um, that improve care coordination and therefore uh, clinical outcomes, patient safety, um, and the overall experience of care, whether it be through access or, as I love what, what you said, just being seen by the healthcare system, being seen by my provider um, uh, is incredibly important because uh, that's when you're seen, you feel cared for. Um, and that's really, really important um, in healthcare. So we'll leave it there today. Thank you all for joining us and we'll pick it back up uh, next time. Thanks for joining us today. That's a wrap for this episode. Please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you don't miss an episode. Get No Two Connected today and set yourself and your organization free to unlock your potential. For more information on the value of being No Two Connected, visit us at www.no2.com. Follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Connect. Listen. Transform. Transform.